So imagine being in a plane crash. That would be a horrible enough scenario to imagine, yeah? Think about this. You're in a plane crash. You're the only survivor, including your immediate family. Yep, that's what we've got coming up on the Spencer Lodge podcast. I can't wait to interview my next guest. Cue the music. So Tulsi, thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time. There's lots of people out there that want to hear your story. And so I'm going to dig quite deep into it. But first of all, um, you've done quite a lot of media work before. Is it something that you're quite comfortable with? Yeah, I really enjoy this. And I think every time I do this, it's just a whole new experience. And, and I think it's also, you know, the person interviewing you, where they're at and what they want to know. So. And I like it. I like when people ask me deep questions because it makes me relive the experience, but from a different mindset. Hmm. Katie Piper, who you and I both know, she said something to me when we were talking recently, when I said about her situation being so great that, you know, I, I, I almost felt like I don't have problems when I consider what Katie had been through. And she said to me, everyone's problems are relevant. Everyone's problems are significant to them. And so you must always remember that everyone's issues are, are in their own world, potentially a big issues and never underestimate or devalue that just because I might have been through something that may have been in, you know, in, in the media's eyes, maybe worse. Does that make sense to you? No, absolutely. And I think, you know, so many people said to me, I could never imagine what you've been through. I could never do that. But I think, yeah, like Katie said, you know, Everyone matters. Everyone's stories matter. We've all got a story, you know. Um, there's no size, it's not big or small or mine's better than yours. Or, you know, it's, it's a story. It's a story of resilience. It's a story of, you know, fighting over adversity um, and getting somewhere, triumphing over adversity. Um, yeah, and I just think that we all matter in the day. We all matter. Yeah, we do. So, Tulsi... For those that, that haven't heard your story, please do me a favor. Take, take me back to the beginning and take me on this journey with you because I know that it's, it's a few years ago now, but when I, when I read about what had happened to you, it, it, mo it moved me and it made me compelled to reach out to you to get you to come and tell us your story on the show because I think a lot of people need to see it and not necessarily from the point of view of what happened, but how you, how you fought against this and how you have stayed positive for so long and how you've also inspired so many other people with your determination and your, I, I call it grit. So uh, tell us the story. I like that word, grit, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, um, prior to this big life-changing experience, I was quite a, a boisterous child, you know, fighting injustices in the playground, very jovial, you know, la laughing and joking. So I, always had that within me you know um and then life changed at the age of 10 uh, my parents decided we're going to travel to India it's the only opportunity we're going to get so they took time out they took us out of school and they were going to sort of give us a, a life experience that was outside of the classroom um so this is like late 80s early 90s there's something quite big during that time anyway um so my Dad had last seen his grandfather 23 years prior to that. So he thought, well, let's go and see him, take the children, so that's me and my brother, around India, experience life from people living in poverty to, 
to everything, the whole spectrum. So we've got there, this is February 1990. I've seen my great grandfather, an amazing experience. But at that time, which is quite common, we lost our luggage. So back then we had to go back to Mumbai to pick up our luggage. So it arrived a week later. My parents decided, well, whilst we're in Mumbai, let's travel south of India. Um, and then we'll come back to our village, which is in um, west part of India in Gujarat. So off we went. Me and my brother wanted to go Goa because anyone said India for me and him, it was Goa. You know, <laughs> that's all that existed was the beach. Um, you know, little did we know it's all about villages and greenery and the whole package. So they decided we we're going to go to Bangalore, which I'd not even heard of at that time. I mean, I didn't even know what that was, or what's so significant about it. So reluctantly, me and my brother did get on the plane. Um, and then I was fighting with my brother because he got the seat by the window. Because again, you know, living in the UK, we don't see blue skies. Yes, we see green fields, but it was just one of those significant moments in my head that lovely birds I view of what a beautiful country looks like. Anyway, I'm fighting with him. And the next thing I actually hear is my grandmother's voice. I left my grandmother back in the UK, um, in London, and she's talking to me as if like she's so close to me, not someone at the end of a phone. Between her telling me, Dulcie, you look different. Your mom, dad, and Gomlesh, that's my brother, are no more. To me being confused to, is she on the plane and surprising us? As well as me fighting with my brother to sit by the window. But she's crying and sort of that generation in that time, they never showed the emotion. So I thought, well, if she's surprising us, maybe she's got emotional. You know, that's the kind of thing that's going through my head. And then the young medic doctor. Now, I don't know the time space in between the accident happening on February 14th to when my grandmother is talking to me. To me, that didn't really resonate because I'm still fighting with my brother. I've still got the blue skies and the green fields going through my mind. But he said, I'm going to be taking care of you. Um, all the doctors are on the airfield site, taking care of all the victims. And um, don't worry, this is a stranger's voice. Like, it could be the air steward for all I know, you know, just didn't make any sense. And then sort of transported back to the UK via air ambulance with a family who were also involved in the plane crash as well. Um, the gentleman from that family was the one who pulled me out of the plane wreckage because he was actually looking for his daughter. So he managed to pull out his wife, his younger uh, daughter, and the daughter that was underneath me. He managed to pull me out as well as her. Um, never having met before. They're actually from London as well. And yes, yeah, so we've I'm been flown back with them. You know, obviously my family, I've entrusted myself with them. I'm now then greeted by my other family members, like aunties, uncles, and cousins, back here in um, Billericay in Essex at the St. Andrews Burns and Plastic Unit at the time. And again, they're saying the same information. Also, you've been involved in a plane crash. You look different. Mum, dad, and Kamlesh are no more. I, in those roundabout words, it now felt like they were on the plane and have come to surprise us. So again, it's like between me being on the plane to my life changing, 
it didn't feel like my life had changed just because my eyes were bandaged, I was in and out of sedation. Like I said, I have no idea how much time has passed between the accident to me getting to Billericay. From what I know, it's about three, four days. Um, but it felt like time had just stood still. Um, being in Essex, um, in and out of surgery, um, skin grafts, plastic surgery, obviously smoke inhalation trying to keep me alive. So between that going on and the consistent support from my family, I felt quite cushioned, you know, like nothing had really touched me just yet. Um, I hadn't seen myself, my eyes were bandaged. So again, I had no recollection, recollection of what was going on. And then about four weeks post um, accident, they removed the bandages from my eyes and so would you like to see yourself in the mirror? And the person that I was, I was still jovial. I was still quite boisterous. I was still talking to my family as I would have done anyway. They didn't treat me any different. They didn't treat me any special or, you know, they didn't cushion anything. They just treated Dulce as Dulce. So when they, when they gave me the mirror, I was really excited to see myself because when someone says you look different, it's like, had my hair color changed or had I grown? Like <laughs> for a 10 year old, looking different isn't something you come across on a day-to-day -day basis. So I was so excited and I think they were quite concerned at the hospital that, hang on, does she actually know what's actually happened to her? They were great. So looked at myself in the mirror and the person reflecting back wasn't me. And I actually thought somebody drew that face on because it was quite horrendous. So I thought somebody's playing a joke here, you know, they've drew this face on in this mirror, but the person in the mirror who was moving their mouth and their eyes and the head, I soon realized that is me. And then I looked down at my left hand, you know, it's quite heavily scarred. At the time it was red, raw, I had metal rods sticking out my fingers to straighten them. So I looked down and I thought, okay, something has happened. But naively or optimistically, I just thought in a year's time, it's going to be this magic cloth and it won't really matter. So I didn't kind of take it serious at that point. Um, so, yeah, still in hospital, um, in the Burns unit and then the children's ward. And everyone, again, just treated me as me. Obviously, the nurses and doctors are used to seeing people with scars. So they didn't treat me any different. They treated me as a person. But it's when I left hospital, it's the journey to and from hospital or the journey to and from school into the outer community, you know, is when I realized that I am different and that people are looking at me differently. This is where the name calling started. Um, people crossing the road in case they caught something. Um, you know, the name calling, uh, young children throwing things at me to see like, if I have emotions like they do. So it was quite a lot of isolation. I couldn't really tell anyone because growing up, especially like in a South Asian community, and I'm sure in many communities as well, but growing up in the South Asian community, it was very much, well, now that this has happened, get over it. It happens to other people too. So there wasn't sort of an understanding of what bullying actually was about, you know? So I did feel quite isolated that I couldn't share these sort of lonely experiences. Well, you were, you were, you were kind of in a, you, you know, being from, 
Upton Park, for people that don't know where that is, it's the east end of London, um, close to a famous football club's old football uh, stadium. They've moved now. And it's kind of inner city, um, east London, kind of suburbia with rows of terraced houses and um, and people knowing each other. But, you know, with underprivileged people not living far away, it's not like it's a salubrious, fancy part of, uh, uh, of the UK. Um, I would say probably more working class than anything else. But also the upsides, I think, with a, with a, a great sense of community around the area as well. But but they say that the meanest people on the planet sometimes are kids anyway. So uh, and obviously they don't know they're doing that. So it must have been a, you know, a tough environment to be in. It's not like you're out in the countryside and could have some peace, really, is it? Well, that's exactly it. And it's not like every other person walking down the street looks like you. So, again, you know, feeling quite isolated, apart from when I went to hospital and I saw someone with burns thinking, oh, yeah. So, again, it was wasn't like an everyday person looked like me. In school, it was fantastic, had the most amazing experience. I was very, very lucky, you know, great friends. But they couldn't also understand, because even if I explained to them, they saw me as T, they didn't see me any differently. Yes, they got upset if somebody bullied me. But again, at that age, you know, you're talking 11, 12, what can they do to help as well? You know, they can sort of ward off the bullies, but I guess watching me go through that was quite painful for them. But some of it I didn't even share with them because it almost felt quite embarrassing. But yeah, so that all went on. So I began to feel a lot lonelier and I adopted the word ugly as part of my vocabulary. Vocabulary, sorry. And it just became my everyday word. So I felt ugly. I looked ugly. You know, that's what was with me all the time. So should someone have said, wow, you're so beautiful, you're brave you've gone through all this and look where you are. That didn't really resonate with me um, just because of the way I looked and how I felt because of the bullies. So because of that, I had no self-worth. I didn't feel like I was going to go anywhere, like who was going to employ me, who was going to date me, you know, because I just all those type of things came to my mindset. And again, being from a South Asian community, everything's always about when you get married when you have children, when you settle down. It's not like, where are you gonna be in the world and what you're gonna progress? It's always about marriage. So again, that was, the seed was planted from the age of 10 of who's gonna look at you, who's gonna marry you. So that stayed with me. So whilst I watched my friends go through the dating and all of that, that's where more loneliness kicked in. And it's in that time that I started to work on myself more like how do I improve myself so that I can be valuable and I just didn't know how to because every time I tried to do that it kept taking me back to the point of how ugly I felt or how low my self-esteem was. I still went to college after that which was great good experience in the hotel and tourism industry but it's this is where a massive discrimination situation happened and it set me back again where I applied for a job it was in the hotel industry I liked people I liked talking to them and interacting so I wanted to be front of house never thinking that my burns would limit me um applied for the job and the company came back with dear Miss Swagjani unfortunately you haven't got this position 
your face doesn't fit the company. And I didn't really read into that. I just took it as the disappointment and the rejection. And having reread that again, your face doesn't fit this company. It was just another reminder that this face isn't going to get anywhere. You know, it was just another setback. Like, what kind of job am I going to go into that doesn't require my face, so to speak? Um, the type of job offers I got were like, you know, at the time I used to call them chambermaids, but, you know, room assistant or, you know, whatever. But that's the kind of jobs I got in the hotel industry. Now, don't get me wrong, I have no issue doing that, but that's not my progression in life. Um, so then I just stepped back and I stopped applying for jobs because again, in the retail industry, you know, like your Saturday jobs would go down Oxford High Street. That would be our Saturday type of job. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I, again, just the rejection was constant. So my self-esteem and self-worth dwindled even further. That's when I started to go into really deep depression within myself. But anyone who knows or doesn't even, you know, understand this is that depression isn't just okay I'm depressed it's an ongoing progression towards this point where you're so far away from who you actually are um and I was in the midst of it not realizing I was in there I put on weight because I was comfort eating and that's the thing again we don't talk about so again culturally it was you're so fat who's going to look at you so where the white weight was piling on no one was understanding why. Um, I then went on to do health and social care in that time and the opportunity to do a counselling certificate course. And it's in that moment I learned quite a lot about me. So arrogantly, I went to learn it because I want to help people. But when you do any, anything like you know NLP, counselling, anything in that field, you learn a lot more about yourself first before you can learn a lot about anyone else. So again, I had to face myself. Um, I wouldn't want to use the word demon in this term lightly, but that's literally it, facing your demons, facing the shadow, the dark side. Um, but yeah, I still couldn't shift that self-loathing, low self-esteem, you know, I just couldn't shift it. I'm excelling academically, but internally it's not bringing me any gratification because I still come home and I'm not that pretty girl that I saw in college or at the bar or at the club or out on the street. I'm not that girl. I'm not that woman. I'm not the person that a guy would look twice at. So all of these things used to set me back quite a lot. Um, then an opportunity came up where I was doing Pilates at the local gym. So this is now me trying to lose the weight trying to get some control back in my life. This is about year 2000. I met an amazing Pilates instructor who's a really good friend even now. Um, so Nikki invested her time in me. My body shape started to change. So yes, confidence grew, but I still didn't feel good about myself. I still had no self-worth, so to speak, you know. And then 2004, had a breakup. So yes, I started dating. But I put my all into this guy that this is my everything. And when we broke up, it was so devastating. It's like that rejection all over again. Um, so the rejection from my family leaving me, the rejection from the jobs, 
the rejection from dating or just the whole package and it came back to that so I put my whole into this degree that came up which is complementary therapy specializing in pilates and therapeutic massage so this is about year 2004 um the funny thing is it's a science degree and where i never thought i was good enough or clever enough to do science i felt like what am i doing why am i throwing myself at the deep end but i just kept telling myself just take it one day at a time you can leave whenever you want, don't worry. So it's almost like leaving was an option, even though that's not what I should have done, you know? So, but that was good because that sort of bought me a lot of time and I started to enjoy it. In the midst of doing my degree in the second year, and you know, like if you've been to universities in the UK, very old stuffy buildings, you know, very Victorian Edwardian type buildings. So the, the lecture theatre started to feel really small and confined and I used to feel quite nauseous so I got myself seen by the GP and um, he looked quite alarmed and he said Look, I'm going to rush you to A&E at the Royal London in Whitechapel um, because I've got a really good friend who works there you'll get seen and obviously in A&E you don't get seen anything less than four hours within 20 minutes I was seen had my bloods done they looked a little bit concerned but they didn't really show it. But you know, when you pick up the energy that something's not right. Um, had a biopsy done on my kidneys um, because the creatinine level in my blood was quite high. But my GP did say it could be a, an infection or it could be something long-term, but I can't really tell you. Because don't worry. I, and I think he was just trying to hide the sort of the gravity of this. Um, had the biopsy done at Royal London. 24 hours later, the results came back um, and I was diagnosed with end-stage renal failure, um, which is the last stage. Uh, when I heard that from my consultant, all I heard was, I am dying. That's what I heard. I didn't hear him say, don't worry, Dulce, there's going to be options. There's going to, you know, you can have dialysis, or a transplant. I didn't hear that. All I heard was, I am dying. And is this how I'm going to go? After everything I've been through, am I really going to go in a hospital bed? And that's what came through my head. Um, my auntie, who has been part of my journey, not from just only a young age, but from the accident, she sort of played that second role, uh, mother, mother role. And she was there with me and she said, no, look, the doctor's saying, there's, there's options, it's okay. Um, so I kind of took, my t took myself back and went, okay, that's fine, I can deal with this. This is okay, I need to get to university, I will deal with this later. So even in that, even in that time, I very much treated life as if, oh, it's okay, this is just minor, it's, it's fine, you know? I, like how I did with my accident, I guess. Um, from that time when I got diagnosed, which was April 2006 to August 2006, so four months, you know, um, my kidneys did decline quite rapidly. And I was just about to go on holiday thinking this might be my last one before I'm on dialysis. But the day I was supposed to be flying, I had to actually come into hospital, have a catheter fitted into my abdomen and start my training for dialysis. 
but I said to the nurse, you know, I'm like, but can I just not go? And she goes, no, you don't understand. You actually don't have that long. Um, she goes, you might not make it on the plane. And I just kind of laughed like I did through a lot of things was, gosh, I didn't die the first time on the plane. Second time might be pushing it. So, okay, I'll, <laughs> I won't travel. And that's how I got through so much of all the hurdles to that point. Just sort of the humour. And, you know, like the East End type of attitude was, you just get on with it, you know. And I suppose I had that in me. Um, yeah, so I got fitted with this catheter, trained on this dialysis um, machine, two weeks of training. It's like a work experience, literally, you know. Um, <laughs> this machine, literally, this machine used to look like those. Do you remember these old printers that were, like, so huge? And the ones you'd have in your home, not even in a printing place. That's how big this was. It had a suitcase of its own. Um, so literally this machine would sit by my bedside. I would dialyze every night for eight hours. Um, so obviously being in the midst of my degree, I would set up my machine, which is about half an hour, 45 minute procedure, uh, plug myself in, have my laptop and my textbooks on my bed, do my essays whilst being connected, go sleep, come off the machine, go uni and repeated that. Because of just the pressure, I kind of deferred a year. Um, and I finished my degree in 2008, you know, with a 2-1, uh, a percent short of a first, which was amazing. And this is the first time in which I've actually acknowledged my achievement. Now to many, achievement might be, well, you survived a plane crash and you've done so much. But to me, this achievement wasn't just because I got the degree, but it was all the things that were sent to, to limit me or stop me from achieving something. I went over that hurdle and I smashed those goals in the face and like, I can do this, despite what was trying to either stop me or slow me down. Um, like for me, there wasn't any other option but to do the degree. And I always found ways to do it, i.e., you know, the textbook on the bed and laptop on the bed. Let, let me let me just take you back a little bit and ask a few questions around this, because I know my, my viewers will want to know. How many people were on the plane the day you crashed? Um, I think about 149. And how many survived? I think about... 90 90 no it would sorry less than that 46 sorry 90 i'm just thinking how many passed away but yeah so 46 survived yeah and varying degrees of uh injury yeah absolutely yeah okay have you have you ever been back to india i have i went three years post accident to the actual site Okay, so because obviously you don't remember that taking place, you were you were essentially pulled from the wreckage. So, when you went back three years later, what was that experience like for you? It was unreal because I mean, obviously with my name, it's quite a common name in India. It's a holy plant. So, when we arranged for myself to visit this place, you know, I was literally treated like VIP, and I thought, oh wow, what's going on? I met a few people at the airport who had lost either their partner or someone on the plane. And they have got 
part of the plane wreckage on site. When I saw that, it didn't really mean anything to me. Um, to my granddad, it did because where they'd gone after, after the accident, they'd seen the wreckage, they had to identify my dad and my mom and my brother. So he was a bit like, wow, they closed off the runway and the, the air traffic so that I could visit the site. Now, to be honest, it was just a brick, I mean, a, a wall, a concrete slab. There was no X marks to spot. There was nothing that said something happened here. But the moment I went there to lay a wreath for those who passed away, a weird sensation happened where I just started to cry as if like, I know something's happened here a big loss has happened but like i said it wasn't like there was a picture of anyone or a plaque or you just sensed it yeah just as a big sensation and i've never cried for anyone until I, my parents until that point and you just think three years on and i hadn't actually cried about anything to do with the accident or the loss but yet this particular spot just hit me and it was yeah it was a sensation you were you were 10 years old yeah at the time of the accident and so 10 years old at the time of the accident tell tell me what you remember of your mum and dad um i have amazing memories of my mum and dad um i was very spoiled <laughs> very very spoiled um like my mum's ethos and it was quite funny she told her own siblings before she went you know don't sweat the small stuff um just live for the moment you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring and she had that attitude in general, but with me and my brother, she spoiled us quite a lot. So, you know, back in the days we used to have Woolworths and they used to get those pick and mix and the funky stationery. So every Friday coming home from work, she'd always buy us some bits from Woolworths or, you know, equivalent. And for her, it was, I don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring. So I wanna just give all the good stuff to my children. My dad was like very hardworking in the respect of he wanted to retire quite early, to travel more with us, to give us experiences. He was more about experiences than academic. My mum was more academic. But um, we went on a you know, family trip around UK, like camping and just doing different things. So all I know is love. Like I don't remember any points that there was arguments or hardship or bad vibes you know like mm. all i can just remember is just smiling and being happy and do you, you said you didn't cry for three years after the accident were you did you block out those memories during that period did you did you did, it was it was it a subconscious coping mechanism or did you um, spend time honouring their memory. What did you do during those three years? I think for me, it was definitely suppressing anything connected to my family. Because in my head, it was, they've lost their passport, they're coming for me. So that kept me going. So where my family were mourning and, you know, just, oh my God, I can't believe they're gone. To me, it was like, they're not gone. They're going to come back. You know, stop saying they're gone. Just lost their passport. They're trying to get new ones and they're coming for me. So I guess that kept giving me comfort. Um, to say I didn't cry as in for myself was more so about the accident than my family. I did cry like if I was in pain, but again, I wouldn't have shown that to anybody. It was in my, 
in my own room or if I was in hospital, it would have been there. Mm. But I, I did deny the fact that all of this had happened and I'd lost them um, for quite a long while, to be honest. And when you think about the people that brought you up, you said you spoke about your auntie and you spoke about her being almost like a second mum to you. What kind of person is she? She's so amazing. Like, you know, she's very family orientated. She's got four children of her own. So even at that time, she um, had three. Um, She just gave me 110% dedication, you know, just, I guess, cushioned a lot of the pain. Um, And despite her family being quite young, so even all my aunts and uncles who were at the hospital visiting daily, they all had young families young families you know all my cousins were similar age or a little bit younger because I'm one of the old older cousins so despite their loss their mourning they showed up every day you know and so this aunt of mine she showed up every day Um, even now you know she still shows up every day she's still she's there when I need her she needs me you know it works both ways for us um but yeah, it's just, I, I think it just amazes me that even though she had three children, obviously mourning her loss as well, but she just, just, just was there. She, she never showed me that she wasn't there. Was she, was she the, the I, I like to talk about kindness and I often ask people, what's the, what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? But I think you kind of answered that in what, what she did by making those big sacrifices for the sake of you and putting you first, which I think is an extreme act of kindness uh, that that would be hard to match. Absolutely. I think kindness is that, isn't it? It's showing up for someone in whatever way they need them. Is it someone to just listen to, someone to just hold them, someone to do just the little, little things that just make somebody feel really good. And for me, I always talk about those moments for me is when my family did show up every day. And like I said, they sh- they showed up despite what was going on for them. Like you know, they're mourning a brother, the sister, sister-in-law, uh, uh, you know, a nephew, a grandchild, whatever connection. They're mourning that, but they're still coming there to show that we're here for you. And that's why I say I feel very supported and I suppose cushioned as well because they never treated me like any different. They didn't say. Tulsi, look at your face or you look ugly you know they didn't do that they they just took it all on of course for them it's a massive transition like the Tulsi they knew who looked like this to how she looks now but even now even till today they don't see the scars obviously they've had long time to work through it but they just show up and I think that's all it is it's somebody showing up is the biggest kindness a way of showing kindness that we can all do, you know. When you were depressed, did you ever think about killing yourself? The one significant time that I really felt I wanted to end it was I was on my way to the job centre again to go and sign on because I, I wasn't working. Just at the bus stop, a car pulls up just near the traffic lights and there's like four guys in the car. They wind their window down and they said, oh, you're effing ugly, you should have died. When I looked around at the bus stop, I actually thought maybe they're talking to someone else. Never at that point did I I think it was me, but there was no one at the bus stop. So obviously I knew it was me. 
and I felt so low and it's like the bus is coming I've got to get to the um, job center which in itself is so horrible anyway what do I do and it's almost like do I stand in front of this bus do I get on the bus what do I do um I got on the bus because I didn't want to let the job center down or give them a reason not to pay me fundamentally obviously I didn't want to let myself down of course but that's all that kept going through my head um that's got to be the worst of it but I think after I had my transplant which was back in 2009 it was horrible because I was so ill anything and everything that could go wrong was happening yet on dialysis I was great I yes I had to plug in every every night but I was still able to party, I was still able to do everything. But now being in and out of hospital for the whole of 2009, I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is, this is when life felt, I just can't do it anymore. I'm tired. Yeah. Um, and I never thought, it sounds really surreal when you think I've been through all of that and I've never felt tired, but yet here I am feeling just like I'm done, you know, like I'm just exhausted, all my options, I'm done. How, how many, apart from your, your kidney uh, procedures, how many operations did you have? Uh, for the skin graft, over 50. Over 50. And when, well, just to give some perspective on it for people that wouldn't have never been in that scenario, a skin graft operation, is that where you go in and you have something done and you come out the same day? Or is that where something much bigger takes place and you're in hospital for a few days and then you've got a few weeks of recovery. T- t- tell us a bit about, uh, and uh, not one in particular, but a typical example so we can get some perspective on this. Yeah, so like a skin graft will be, they take skin from a donor site. Like if you've got like your normal skin, they'll take a you know donor site. So like, for example, here um, where there's no scars was my skin and on your arm. it's a different color to this skin because that's where they would have taken skin off. Um, they put it on this mesh, they almost grow this skin, so to stretch it out, and then they'd put it over the the site. So like, you know, for example, over this arm yeah. site. Um, so the procedure would probably be, you're looking about four to five hours minimum. Um, that's in the operating theater. Uh, I'd be probably in hospital for about three to four weeks, about a month. You'd be in hospital for a month after each operation. Yeah. So where initially when I had my accident, obviously I, I was in hospital. Sure. It was in and out, in and out, in and out. But um, post-discharge, this is how it would have been. So obviously a month out of school was normal for me. And so how many, how many, how many operations would you have? Uh, so when did the majority of the operations take place? Was it between the age of kind of like 12 and 20 or t- just give me that. And then also on average, how many operations might you have in a year? So from the accident, so I was age 10 to about 16 is when I had majority of all my operations. Uh, Cause obviously the, you're changing, you know, cause obviously you're growing and everything. And then after that was very much left to me, if there was anything that I needed doing, I would go in. So I've had like, you know, um, some skin release in my left hand because I've got very limited mobility. So a lot of tendon work. Um, so yeah, like, like I said, over 50 operations from then till about now. Um, now I've just been left to my own device as to 
if I need anything doing, contact them. But there isn't anything that needs doing now. So 50 operations, you know, if people would say someone's going to have bad luck, they, they couldn't imagine bad luck in the level that you've had it, you know, bad luck in terms of the plane crash, in terms of your kidney, losing your family. I mean, you've, you've had a, um, a catalogue of unfortunate incidences and you sit here talking to me with a smile on your face, very matter of fact, and 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 just lovely having a chat with you before we went we went onto the recording. Where do you get your positive spirit from? Oh, amazing question. Um, I think I've always had that. I've had this will and determination from a very young age. Like I said, there's injustices in the school playground. Um, fighting for something because I just couldn't watch something that just didn't feel right you know um and I guess for me I always say this I always knew I was going to be okay so if I went through like you know when the kidneys failed for example I was like don't worry T you're going to be okay now I don't know what okay is going to look like and I still don't know what okay looks like but I'm just winging it that's how I put it I'm just winging okay um and I think that's just it I just know I'm going to be all right I don't you know I didn't grow up with having this faith like you know yes I came from sort of a religious background but I never really believed in anything I never really went okay well this is God's doing or or I believe in God or anything because initially I did hate God because he took my beauty away um obviously now fast forward where I am now I I know why I had to do this is because I had to work from my inside out. You know, I had to work to really understand who I am and to really shine this light brighter than what's on the exterior. So maybe coming full circle, I think, well, God did do me a favor if there's this external. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that because you say God took your beauty away, but do you really believe that? No. So it was very much, I had to go on this internal journey to appreciate the external, you know, of who I am. The external doesn't define who I am, but we're so caught up on the external, you know, everything's based on the external because my hair's not this, because my nose is not that, my eyes not this. And we're so bogged down and that's what I was caught up in. I was so caught up in, I'm not gonna get that job because of my face. Now, I don't see that. I don't see my face as an excuse of not doing something. Um, and I think, I think a lot of that comes from when my kidneys failed and realized I'm surviving on a different level here now. I'm surviving to fight another day because of my health. My scars never stopped me from living in respect. They didn't stop me from going to school. They didn't stop me from eating or being active. It was my mindset that stopped me doing that. Now it's my health that's on the line. I'm dealing with a whole different level of what living is about now. You know, what, um, what, what do you do now to inspire others? What do you do now to, to share your story to people that might, you know, you've obviously met over the years, other people that have been in maybe similar situations for you that are probably in or have been in those dark places that, that you went through. So what do you, what do you do to help reassure these types of people and, and, and inspire them? How, what, what's the process and, and how do you do it? Is it something that comes natural to you? Do you just lean into it as because as, that's your character or do you have to really think this kind of stuff through? No, I, I think uh, for me, it's quite natural. You know, I guess back to 
fighting injustices. This is injustice that, you know, someone like me shouldn't be discriminated because of the way I look. No one, no one asked me like, what's your ability? What can you do? Um, so I campaigned for the fashion and beauty industry to bring about change, to have more inclusivity, because there's no one that looks like me out there, as in, you know, five foot nothing with scars, South Asian, for example. So how do I know what a dress looks like? How do I know what this looks like? There's not someone that I can look up to. I've taken on that role to be that inspiration for a lot of these young um, South Asian women or children or girls, because where we were dealt with, you know, everything's based on this Bollywood fashion, this elaborate way of being. And that was who I measured myself against, against these actresses, never looking at maybe they have insecurities, maybe they going through their stuff. We you know we don't see that. So how, I don't look like that person, but why am I consistently fighting to look like someone that I'm not? And more so, again, South Asian community, everything's brushed under the carpet. We don't deal with it. Nothing happens to us. Mental health doesn't affect us. Physical health doesn't affect us. Nothing affects us. It's as if like we've been protected. We know that's not the case. We're humans before we are anything else on this planet. So for me, I want to show that it's okay to feel the rejection. It's okay to feel sadness, but it's also okay to take the power back and be who you're always meant to be. I'm very much about authenticity and that's what I go to do. I'm an influential speaker in about living your true authentic self. So you never have to fight another day. You never have to fight yourself another day. And that's where my self-worth has um, you know, gone up. Um, I'm able to do this podcast with confidence rather than sitting there thinking, what do you think of me? Or am I good enough? You know. Um, and that's what I do. I, I'm also a Reiki master, so I help with um, you know, a lot of healing from within, healing traumas, all these layers that just are holding us back from this. We've got this limited mindset and it's like helping somebody break out of that limitation so that they can show up as their true self and be this valuable member in this world. We all need everybody in this world, you know. We all got different roles to play and we need that, you know. Um, and that's what I'm here to do. Mm. What message have you got for the for the equivalence of those four guys in the car that are abusive to you at the bus stop, what message have you got for those kind of people that might indirectly pick up on this? What would you say to those types of people? Well, first of all, I'd say thank you to them um, because, you know, thank you for showing me just how much more work there is left to do in this planet. For every person who's like that, I work that much more harder to show that some of these younger generation coming through don't have to face that um also to them it's like be careful who you're projecting this stuff onto because no one is exempt from pain and suffering you know we all have it some form or another there's no measurement greater and smaller we all got it in our different doses but be careful what you project because you just don't know how it's going to come back to you and how you're going to cope when this is when the ball's on that foot, you know, like that's what it is. Be careful of your words and your intentions because you don't know how they're going to come back to you. And I think like we talked about kindness, you know, kindness is also an intention, the intention that we're going to do something really good. That's going to come back to us tenfold. 
Um, so I'm very much a believer of obviously karma and respect of doing good and good comes back to you. Who inspires you? Ooh. <laughs> um, I think my my biggest inspiration would uh, currently would have to be my seven year old niece, which sounds so surreal. Um, she inspires me to work that much more harder on myself with my language, uh, being true to like practicing what I preach basically, because I always have to remember who's looking up at me and she looks up at me. She comes to me for guidance. I help her. And I always say to you, you're my greatest teacher because all those limitations that I grew up with, I don't want her to be 40 and still be fighting the demons that I'm fighting. Excellent stuff. Tulsi Vagjiani, I can't say how delightful it was sitting chatting to you for the last hour. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed the experience. I sure did. Thank you, Spencer. Excellent stuff. We really appreciate your time. Thank you once again. If you've enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, leave a five-star rating, please, or some comments on SoundCloud, Spotify. I would really appreciate it. And the more that I get of this, the more people will see this show. It'll get noticed and picked up and more people will get the same value out of it as you. So please do me a favor and take the time to do that. I would really appreciate it. And if you haven't subscribed yet, why not? Go and subscribe. Get these episodes. These guests are just amazing people and I'm sure you'll enjoy every single one of them. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon. Oh, my God.